Internets, welcome to another episode of Step Off Radio, the official podcast of Step Off Magazine. I'm your host, Rob Camacho, and thank you for tuning in to another installment of the show. We have a truly wonderful guest joining us on the show today. I had the opportunity to interview the brilliant Chicano painter and visual artist Jake Prendes. For those of you that don't know, Jake is an artist who is based out of Seattle, Washington. He's the creator of a series of very popular oil painting portraits, and he's also the co-director of the Napatla Cultural Center in the neighborhood of Whitehead, Seattle. I had a really great discussion with Jake talking about his upbringing in the Seattle area, the struggle to culturally thrive at a time where Seattle and many cities like it had very little representation in regard to Chicanos and other Latinos, and also his political awakening and desire to create art that pulls on cultural triggers to elicit a response from his audience. I love this conversation because in the midst of our discussion, I couldn't help but notice a lot of parallels from Jake's journey to my own personally, especially this theme of being forced to move to a new place, never quite fitting in, his cultural and political awakening in high school and continuing on into college, and also the fact that he decided to pursue his dream of being an artist later in life compared to his other fellow creatives, and he never let that gap get in his way. All of that and so much more is coming up, so without further ado, Internets, I present to you my conversation with the one and only Jake Prendes. Hi, Jake. Hey, how you doing, man? Good, how about you? Doing good. Thank you for taking the time to uh, sit down and talk with me today. Oh, no worries, man. I was uh, looking at those interview questions like, damn, he did his research. (laughs) (laughs) I always try my best to uh, be as thorough as possible. That way I'm not asking the same questions that everybody's asked over and over again. I was just like, yeah. I was like, oh, yeah, I did. Grew up in, born in Hammond, yeah. Part of my own life. (laughs) <laughs> all right um you know thank you for taking the time to sit down and talk with us um for our readers out there who may not be familiar with your work can you please introduce yourself and in your own words tell us what it is that you do so my name is jake prendez i'm a chicano artist uh, dealing mostly in oil paintings and i am also the owner and co-director of the napata cultural arts gallery here in seattle washington so tell us a little bit about your upbringing, man. You know, you were born in Hemet, California, but your family moved to Seattle when you were five. Can you describe your early influences growing up as a Chicano kid in Seattle and um, what would ultimately inspire you to kind of pursue um, this work in art? So I was born in Hemet, California, a small little town outside of kind of half hour outside of Riverside. And from what I remember, it was great because I had like all my family around you know I'm, my great-grandparents everyone you know was in this little town and I was the firstborn grandchild <laughs> on like both sides of my family and like the first boy like in a long time so I was like oh my god Jake's coming over <laughs> get excited you know so but we moved to Seattle my dad's allergic to the sun and so probably being raised and living in the desert, <laughs> not the greatest place for him. So my mom had a cousin in Seattle. My dad had a cousin in Seattle. And so I guess they just decided it was either going to be like, I guess, Colorado or, or Seattle. And um, they, they chose Seattle. And, and, that, and so and I lived in like right outside the city limits. It was like a little town called Bothell. 
So Seattle's white enough, <laughs> right? <laughs> Especially in like 80, I think it was 1980 when we moved up. And then a like white suburb on top of that where I, I think elementary school years, I don't, I think there might've been one other Latino kid that kind of lived in town for a year. Um, so yeah, it, you know, it just, I remember just it, it being off. Like, it, you know, when you're that young, you don't, there's no way to kind of really describe it. You, you're, you just know things are different. Mm-hmm. Here, right. And then just, I think the heartbreak of being kind of ripped away from like all my family. I just was like a depressed six year old, oh. <laughs> you know, where I just, I hated it. And like, my mom said I, I like drew broken hearts all over my sheets. Oh wow! It's <laughs> like you know I miss my grandparents so much. Like basically, I was like almost raised by them until that point, you know. And so, but yeah, and, and even in school, it, it just felt different, right? And I didn't know how to describe it. And you know, and then, you know, later on, I just remember experiences and just like when you're a little more of racism, and you're like, hey, that's what we call racism. <laughs> And I, I remember, yeah, like I remember like a, a teacher, like um, talking about like different cultures or something like that. This might have been third grade or something, maybe fifth. And, you know, it's like talk about Mexicans, like I'm Mexican. And talk about like Native Americans, I'm Native American. And talk about like, like Italians, oh, I'm Italian. You know, and I remember like, like Jake, you can't be all those things. Like thought I was oh. blind. About it, you know? Wow. I was like, oh. Maybe I can't. Maybe I was wrong. Okay. <laughs> you know, just little things and, you know, just not having that culture around, you know, just the little things I think, like, even now, like, coming back to Seattle, little things that I just, I you take for granted, like, the elotero coming by your house every day, you know, um, there's, it's just little things that you miss so much and that. You know, fortunately, I would go visit. My parents would like send me to California every summer to, you know, be with my family out there. So I, you know, I got my summers in Cali, <laughs> you know, and then uh, I kind of like bring back that culture. I think by middle school, there, you know, there were kind of like an influx in Bothell of like minority kids. So there were, had like a little crew in middle school. We call ourselves DSOB, different shades of brown. Because we were like Mexican and Peruvian and Cambodian and black, and Filipino and like Vietnamese. And we all hung out together. And I would kind of like come back from Cali with like all this like cholo swag and stuff. Like you know, like the swap meet cholo shirts and the, the homie shirts and figurines and things like that that, you know, you couldn't get in Seattle. And I was like, whoa, wow. And I, like, I was like, so cool. I'll be like, I was like, have you all heard of this kid, Frost? And they're like, what? I got a tape. Check out this tape of lighter shade of brown. And it was just like, so, you know, it was funny, you know. So, yeah, it, it just, the diversity was there. And I, and just, I always felt off, right? Like, I was weird. There's something off about me. And it wasn't until I moved back to L.A. that I just felt, like, normal. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, I didn't feel off. I was like, oh, my God, it wasn't me all this time. <laughs> I just was in the wrong place. 
growing up, because you said like as you get older, you start to kind of notice more of this, like the racism or lack of, a lack of culture. And I noticed that um, people kind of tend to go like in either one of two directions when they're growing up. They either completely just detach themselves from their culture or they go all in. And I'm assuming that you did the latter and you went all in. Yeah, you know, I think um, there there was a few moments that I clearly remember. There was that kind of, I think middle school is kind of when folks start like culturally affiliating. Mm -hmm. And I always knew I was Mexican. And I, you know, I always kind of claimed Mexican. But I didn't know that was like different. You know, I thought I was just like everyone else. And by middle school, you know, I remember, I remember kids like not wanting to be my friend anymore, right? Mm -hmm. And I was just like kind of thrown back by that. I was like, you know, I'm not like, like, I guess I thought like Mexican was like Greek or, you know, like, you know, any other ethnicity. Like it wasn't different. It was just a different ethnicity, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, and so I, I didn't understand why I didn't get the racism behind it yet. You know, we started like in middle school, we started like really like, culturally affiliate. And then we kind of, me and a few of my friends who were Mexican, granted, like we're all like half Mexican, <laughs> you know, but that was like, that's about as good as you get in Boston. And, um, yeah, so it, it just, we really, and I remember a class in middle school where, like, for the first time, they taught about Chicanos. And it was, like, a history class. And they kind of talked about Cesar Chavez and things like that. And it was the only time I'd ever heard anything, like, specific about my culture, anything positive about my culture. And it just took. And I think at the time, you would just kind of took on kind of black culture and gave it a Mexican flavor. Like, I literally, if back in the day, there were those shirts that said, it's a black thing you wouldn't understand mm-hmm. that were, like, really popular. And I got a hold of a shirt that said, it's a Mexican thing you wouldn't understand. So it was like, I was just kind of ripping from black culture and kind of making it Mexican. Because I didn't know, you know, really didn't have a grasp on my own culture yet. You know, and the own, like, uniqueness of my culture. But, but high school, I remember a math, in a math class, a teacher passed out this, um, like, handout. And it was, like, kind of a joke handout she passed out to everyone in class. And it was called Ghetto Story Problems. Oh. And it said, things, it was, like, Jerome sells so much drugs. You know, like, this math problem, like, story problem. Maria gets pregnant so many times. Jose pick, you know, pick so much left. It was just like these racist and it it was overtly racist. And I just remember like the teacher and everyone else in the class laughing and thinking this was funny. And it was like, wait, am I the only one that thinks this is racist and horrible? Like, and I think that was one of those defining moments of I'm not the same as you. I'm different. And like you said, there there were two things I could have done. I could have, like, I look white, um, and I could have just pretended I was white and not dealt with the racism, right? But for some reason, I did, like you said, I just chose to be, like, super Chicano. And I would go into the 
the school library and there was like the handful of like kind of Chicano history books in the library. Um, one of them being um, Petito Martinez's uh, Viva, Viva La Raza, like the original copy. And, um, and I would read these books kind of tried like to arm myself. So if they tried to like front on me, like I had some facts behind it, right? I could like get back at them and, um, and actually that Viva La Raza book, I ended up stealing it out of the library. <laughs> and I was like, y'all don't deserve this book. And I, later on, I got her to sign it, stuff like that. But nice. um, I still have that book, man. It's a treasure to me. Yeah. So, it, and yeah, and from that point on, man, I was like super Chicano. And as soon as I got to like community college, I was like, I started the Mecha group and was a hardcore machista through, you know, college and even you know kind of at an advisory role but like even grad school was still supporting the machistas and things like that so like as you said you know you come from like this very multicultural background um and as you're becoming an adult and you're kind of finding your own identity i wanted to ask you in your family was was culture stressed a lot like in your family because i know it's like some families it's like you're just Mexican. I mean, it's just the default, you know, like it's just, it is what it is. And then there's sometimes where like people are all in with the culture. What was your upbringing like in your family? It, exactly that. It was Mexican. Like we're, we're, so my dad's Italian and English and my mom's, both her parents are Mexican, but her mom is part Native American as well. So, but yeah, it was just like, we're Mexican. Eh. And like, it's, it's just that, so, you know, exactly how you said that we were like, it wasn't like we were ashamed of being Mexican. It just, but it wasn't, that's just who we are. Like, and, um, you know, I'm like, I think third generation, I think my great grandpa, I have like records of his, like coming from like crossing over from Eagle Pass, like from Coahuila to through Eagle Pass, Texas mm-hmm. when he was a kid. Um, but my, that side, my mom said they were migrant farm workers in like Bakersfield and Shafter picking potatoes. Um, and then my grandpa ended up being a barber. So kind of got out of it. And, um, so my mom was, I guess that first generation didn't have to work in the fields. And, and then my dad's side, the third generation as well. So it's like my great grandparents immigrated from Sicily. They got like the, the arrival paperwork. The ancestry.com is bomb, man. <laughs> I felt like the, like their arrival paperwork. And actually, one thing that was, I was watching this documentary on Italian Americans and Italians that immigrated from Southern Italy or Sicily were considered undesirables. If you were from Northern Italy, you were considered actually European and you're okay. Because mm-hmm. mo- the concentration of wealth in Italy was mostly in the North. And so every South was kind of poor. They were farmers. And what they would do is when you would arrive, they would like write on your paperwork S for like, or Southern, right? To kind of know like you're an undesirable. And so on my ancestry, I found that like arrival paperwork and it, and it says like S next to their names. I'm like, holy shit, that was real. That's crazy. <laughs> so yeah. So, it, you know, like my dad's basically an orphan. Like no one, it's, it's weird. Like no one had kids on that side of the family. So they just got old and died and there was like no one, no generations 
left. Mm -hmm. And so by the time, I think I was probably seven or so, like my dad's entire family was his brother. Oh, wow. Yeah. So like I never, so, and I see that I've seen my uncle maybe four or five times in my life. So it's like, I, you know, it's like I have no Italian connection, but I had all this large Mexican family. So I, I think I just naturally, you know, took on that, like, I'm Mexican, like I, like my family, like, mm-hmm. you know, culturally, like, that's what I grew up with. And even though, like, with, like, you know, I'm third generation, and, and we're not like these, like, super proud Mexicans that, you know, there's that residual culture, right? So it's, it's still ingrained in everything we do. So, you know, the, the food, the, you know, the dance, the everything, it's just, it's just ingrained in you, you know? So it's it just, it, it was always there. Yeah, it's a part of everything, like you said, from the food to the language to the dance to, like, the familial ties. Like, it just, it has an effect on everything. So you're... Yeah, you're, just, yeah just the way you talk to someone. You yeah. Know? You know, like, I... I Kind of, I remember being in a grocery store one time at, at what looked like a white family walking by, and um, the mom was like, "Come on, Miko, let's go." And I was just like, Whoop. <laughs> <laughs> "You said words, I know." <laughs> <laughs> so, with that being said, also, were you brought up like in an artistic household? Like, did your did your parents like um, encourage you to express yourself through art? You know what's crazy is like now that I look back on it, I think my family had amazing artistic talent and gifts that were repressed because I remember my Diaz because my mom's the oldest. So I had like Diaz that were like closer in age to me than my own sister. So my, me and my sister are seven years apart, but I had a Dia that was five years and a Dia that was seven years older than me. Okay. And so I was really close with them, right? Because they're like sisters. And I remember they used to always draw and like these amazing horses and things like that. And I remember being like, you know, five years old and being like, you're the greatest artist I've ever seen. And, you know, none of them ever did art. Like, I think it was kind of like, that's cute when you're a little girl, but grow up now. Mm -hmm. Um, Art isn't a career kind of thing, you know, like very strong work ethic, you know. Like, yeah. Um, I love my grandpa to death, but yeah, you know, I think he was a little, uh, like a little machismo and, <laughs> <laughs> um, and the, that strong work ethic. And so, yeah, I, I don't think it was allowed. And there's a lot of, I think, dependency issues in my family now that I think, I'm not a psychologist, but I think a lot of it's tied to you know, they, they had no way to express themselves, right? They had this gift that they could use to express angst and turmoil and what they were dealing with. And I think without any outlet, I think alcohol and drugs might have been what they turned to. Mm-hmm. So my mom, you know, I, I don't remember my parents ever drawing or doing anything artistic, but my mom was very art lover. Like, she was our school art lady. She would come to, like, I remember, like in early elementary, uh, she was called the art lady. And she would come to class and then and talk to the kids about, and I remember her talking about 
Vincent Van Gogh and like played that a song about Vincent Van Gogh and, and I remember my, my friends were like, Oh yeah, your mom, she was she was the art lady, huh? And I was like, Yeah, yeah. Uh, so she was an art lover and she was very creative and artsy, but just not like wasn't doing art. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that was, uh, you know, just that it was repressed and I never saw her drawings or if she just wasn't, she was just an art lover. But definitely my art was nurtured. My parents, bless their hearts, were always trying to give me access to art because I think they saw it when I was starting to kind of get into gangs and more and more cholo and my, <laughs> my bend down was getting lower and lower. <laughs> okay. Get this kid some uh, outlets here, and but like if they, I remember they bought me like a computer drawing program or like Corel Draw, like early, like this is early, like computers are just being developed, right? And just like gave me this like art program, which would have been amazing if I had any knowledge or a class or something. <laughs> like it's just like, oh, okay. So I never like used it. I didn't know how to use it or anything. They bought me an airbrush and I, I tried to mural my wall once. I just, I didn't know how to use this stuff. So they would try and give me stuff, but like with no lessons, no class or anything. So it was just like, and this is before YouTube that I could just look it up myself. So, you know, so I just remained kind of pencil and pad kind of a, a kid all through high school and, and most of college. That actually kind of takes me into my next question. It's kind of a two-parter, but like in 2003, you moved to L.A. to work on your master's degree in Chicano Studies at Cal State Northridge, which had the largest Chicano Studies program at the time in the nation. You said in past interviews that that's where Jake Prenda's The Chicano Artist was born. Can you tell us a little bit about your time in L.A. and why it was significant to your journey as an artist and how that kind of brought you to your aha moment of like, this is like, I want to be like a full-fledged artist. Yeah. So I, so I have to go back, I guess, a little. I was a horrible student, <laughs> right? Like, my motto in high school is D is for diploma. <laughs> it's like, that's all I'm trying to do. Give me some Ds and get out of here. Uh, the only, only subject I ever excelled in was art, you know? Um, and I have dyslexia. So, and it was undiagnosed till I was done with my master's program. So it was like, wow, that would have been great information to have while I was in school. Um, but I, you know, I thought like if by high school I would, my art would kind of be appreciated by like, because teachers just hated me or, you know, they don't like the cholo and they don't like the class clown and I was both. <laughs> so, um, but I thought art teachers would like, they would get me and they would like appreciate me and they'd be nice to me kind of thing. But I think they were just scared of me as well. And I just, I remember them just kind of not appreciating the art I was creating. Because I was drawing lowriders and cholos and cholas kind of thing. And then when I got to community college, so I barely graduated. I graduated with like a 1.75 GPA. But I went to community college because my best friend, his parents were making him go and he didn't want to go alone. He's like, man, come, let's go to community college, man. Let's just. And he was like, there'll be hot girls there. I was like, what? Okay. <laughs> so, um, so I went to me college and, you know, I, I remember taking kind of like my first semester, took a drawing class 
And I, I remember them telling me, like, kind of, you can't do this kind of art. It's too ethnic. It's, you know, too gangster. And it's just, it kind of killed it for me, right? So I just stopped creating art by the time I think I was 19 years old. I just, and I just focused on, I did, you know, ethnic studies, at, uh, American ethnic studies at University of Washington. And then I, uh, yeah, so that's when I moved to L.A. was to do my, uh, my master's. And to Rudy Acuna, we brought him up to UW to do a lecture. And, you know, me and a couple of my friends were kind of fortunate enough to be his, like, tour guide while he was at, in Seattle. And uh, we, so we were talking. He was, like, telling me, he's, like, trying to convince me to go to Cal State Northridge and do the Chicano Studies program there. And I did. I, I dropped everything. I applied. And we were on a quarter system. And so spring quarter starts in like March and I remember I got in and this is probably like December and I called I was like yeah so like what when should I probably move out there like and they're like yeah the quarter starts or the semester starts in January and I was like wait what (laughs) so like I literally had like two weeks to move to LA so I just uh, moved down and and that's just like, again, that's, I just, I fit. Like we were just being surrounded by other gente. Like it just going from, I think UW where maybe we were like seven to 10% to Cal State Northridge, we were like 33%, you know, it's mm-hmm. just like, oh, here's where everyone was. <laughs> like, and so, yeah, I just, I fell in love with LA. I, it just felt like home. It felt natural. I just... Again, I always felt off in Seattle a little bit. And when I got to L.A., it just, I felt normal. And I um, I took a class with Irena Cervantes, famous Chicana artist, right? And it was an elective class, but I was able to get it into my schedule. And it was just, it was a painting class. And I just fell in love with it. Because I never really painted. I, I would draw on stuff. And I, I still have the... Like the first painting was a self-portrait. We had a mirror and we had to do our self-portrait. And I just, I was so smug about it. I was like, man, this is hella good. This is like my first painting. What? Like, um, like I look back, I, I had it hanging just to remind me, but, you know, it's like, wow, it's a piece of shit now. <laughs> Thank God I thought it was great at the time because it just kept me going, right? And I just kept painting and painting and I just loved it. And, you know, and it went from, you know, just paying for this class to, you know, doing like uh, a friend. So a friend of mine, her brother was hosting like this monthly event at this at the Verdugo Bar, which was just like a, they had like an outdoor patio and he would set up these like kind of boards around the patio and just invite his artists to come and hang their art. And we just hung out and drank and it was really fun. And I became really good friends with her brother. Um, his name is Oscar Sketch Navarro. And um, and then so myself, uh, Sketch, and then another guy, Edmundo Duran, um, Del Mundo. We started just hosting shows and things like that together. And going to like the downtown LA Art Walk and setting up together. Going to, you know, just different art walks throughout 
kind of the areas so like whether it was like kind of West Covina or Ventura or you know in the, the Canoga art walk like it was just we were all, like every Friday Saturday Sunday we were somewhere you know and um, so it just like you know your art just progresses over time like just it, I always tell people it's painting is like playing a, a musical instrument like you're not you know Dizzy Gillespie wasn't Dizzy Gillespie the first time he picked up a trumpet like it was practice and over years of rigorous study and practice like he became amazing you know and say every painting you do is going to be a little bit better than the last painting it's just you know over the years you really you create you develop your style you develop your talent your skill um and and just perfecting what you're doing and so you know but art was always a side hustle it was never a career Right, I was I was a college so I was a college recruiter, outreach counselor for Cal State Northridge for ten years. Um, so I was a guy. If you you know you go to a college fair and there's all those tables with the different colleges, I was like the guy. Like, hey, have you thought about going to Cal State Northridge? <laughs> this is a program we offer, you know, and going to all the high schools and recruiting students and helping them with their financial aid and all that stuff, which I love. And I got to work with you know a lot of undocumented students who you know, never thought they could go to college and kind of helping them out. And so I mostly had kind of the East LA area, Antelope Valley. Um, so I loved what I was doing, but, you know, had this talent, this skill that just kept growing and growing and getting better. Um, and started to do kind of bigger art shows and things like that and selling my prints more and getting a website, you know, and whatever. But it wasn't until I moved to Seattle that I literally had that, aha moment of like actually being a full-time artist and that was i think maybe five years ago so that hasn't been that long <laughs> yeah like um that actually kind of brings us into our next question so so you're in la from like 2003 to like 2015 right mm-hmm. so you're in la for like you know 12 years you know what was the catalyst for you to move back to seattle and then um tell us about that aha moment when you decide, you know, to take art on full-time? So, it, you know, my, I got divorced and, uh, you know, I, I think I actually got, went a little crazy, you know, like just with, I think the freedom of it, you know, uh, I was just out all the time, always um, partying and stuff like that, but um, kind of masking the pain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um but, um, so I think Seattle was just starting to lose its luster a little bit because I was just in so much heartbreak and pain. Um, but kind of playing like, I'm having the ball and I'm partying all the time. I'm, but my son ended up, he moved to Seattle to go to, he got into University of Washington. And he moved, so he moved to Seattle. And then his mom and my daughter moved up too. And so I was like, well, I was like, screw it. <laughs> both, both my kids are going to be in Seattle. Like, I'm just going to move back, you know, because my idea time was like, you know, at the time they were 16 and 18. And I was like, man, like, I only have a few more years with them before they're just leading their own lives and you know, maybe like, oh, I'm, I got this job in Wisconsin, Dad. I'm going to be moving. I'll see you every Christmas, you know? Mm-hmm. 
And so I just wanted to get that last bit in with my kids before they kind of flew the coop kind of thing. And uh, so, yeah, so I ended up moving to Seattle. And it, it was supposed to kind of be a temporary move. It was like, I'll just move up there till both my kids are out of college and then I'll probably move back to L.A. So I kind of thought it might be a five-year trip. <laughs> um, and uh, so I, I got a job, kind of a nonprofit organization, working in the high schools with youth, like kind of doing college prep work for youth. And I was mainly working with like ninth and 10th graders and um, did it for a couple of years. And then I, 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 thought, I thought I was doing a great job, man. <laughs> but I didn't recruit enough students into the program the second year. And so they fired me and, uh, and I was kind of pissed. I was like, man, I devoted like over 12 years of my life to higher education. And I just got spit out like that. Like it was nothing like, Oh, you didn't recruit enough students this year. Sorry. got to let you go. And I was just like, man, maybe this isn't the career path. <laughs> and so everyone at the time was telling me like, Man, your art's blowing up, man. Why don't you just do art full-time? Why don't you do art full-time? But it's a scary step. You know, I had a, a you know, a, a guaranteed paycheck every month. I had benefits. I had, you know, that job security and everything. So, like, can I make it? You know, I don't know. Like, my art sell enough? And so what I did was, okay, I was like, well, I'm going to for the summer. I had, I had saved up some money. So I had some money in savings. I was like, I'll just do this art thing for the summer. And if I eat through my savings, if I need money, I'm, I'll just start applying to, you know, jobs on college campuses again. And so we got to the end of the summer and I hadn't even touched my savings. I was like, Oh, okay. <laughs> well, let, let's till the end of the year, I'll, I'll do it till the end of the year. And you know, if I still have some money, you know, if I don't have any money, I'll, I'll apply. And my savings was even bigger. Oh, wow. And I was like, oh, crap. Like, I'm doing better than I was, you know, working full time. And I get to sleep in. <laughs> you know, like, I mean, this is kind of cool. So I, I think that's when I really focused on opening the Botla Cultural Arts Gallery. So this had been a dream of mine for, God, like over 10 years, right? I mean, it was just, I had dreamt, you know, and then initially, you know, it was going to be in. California, but it was this like cultural arts center. And so I was like, you know what? Now's the time. And so started like crowdsourcing a little, fundraising, writing grants, and just kind of getting community to buy into this idea of an art space that was devoted to, that was grounded in Latinx art. And the community was excited. So we were, at the time, we were doing a thing called Pop Up Mercados. And that was like kind of in Seattle was like revolutionary. No one had done anything like this, right? In a market, pop up market that was really highlighting, you know, Chicanx, Latinx artisans. And so, like, they were just always packed. And I was like, dude, the, the needs here, like, it was kind of, I guess I was fine with in LA, there's definitely the market, right? Mm-hmm. But it's also, saturated there's mi vida there's espacio there's you know there used to be like all the places that and so i was like okay you know there's 
the market, but are there enough people to support it in Seattle? <laughs> like, because LA, you have the people that you can sustain all these places because there's so many people. But community just, you know, we finally opened up 29th, February 2019. We're coming up on our three-year anniversary and community's been amazingly supportive. And, you know, before the pandemic, we would have big art openings. So every, every month there's a new art show and we would just, the place would be absolutely packed. I couldn't move in there. Like there'd be lines on to get in and, you know, and we would host two to three art workshops a month for community. We would do open mic nights. We do all these amazing things. And so it was just, that support was just overwhelming. You know, and even though we're in a pandemic and we're kind of still on COVID protocol, kind of five people at a time in the gallery. So we can't do the big opening receptions. We can't do open mics. We can't do workshops. People are still in there. They're buying art in the exhibitions. They're buying stuff in the gift shop they're supporting and we're maintaining the space and we're, we're doing well, even with all these restrictions, communities still supporting. I'm glad to hear that it's doing good, even in spite of uh, COVID, which has affected artists disproportionately, I think, throughout those, this whole pandemic, honestly. One thing I like that you touched upon is um, even in a place like Seattle, there is definitely this need for this art. There's an audience for it. And your artwork is rooted in a position that decidedly exuberates a strong sense of Chicano identity. You know, you incorporate messages of Chicano and indigenous empowerment, and you depict a diverse range of Chicano iconography. Why do you believe it's important for the Chicano community to know about their roots and see their heritage and contributions represented in the art like yours does? You know what? I, I think for, for the 18-year-old Jake, that kid that wanted to embrace his roots but didn't have anything to look at locally, right? When I moved here, I was just taken back. Like, there's so many talented artists there, you know, Chicano, Latinx, but no one knew each other. They were all isolated. Someone might be you know, in Everett, someone might be in Olympia, someone might be in Renton, someone might be, you know, in White Center or Seattle. But they, and they were doing these shows, you know, basically, you know, white art shows, right? But, and not collectively with other, you know, Chicano folks, right? Um, and they just didn't know each other. And I think the public mercados first started bringing folks together and like, oh, I'm not alone here, right? Seattle's very isolating in that way. There's not an East LA, you know, there's, mm -hmm. it's just, it's, there's not the big enclaves that there are in California or just the Southwest. And I, I'm always taken back, like Seattle, <laughs> the city of Seattle, the people here really ha don't have a concept that we exist. Like they, like it's crazy, <laughs> it's, and it, it, it just it, it frustrates me, you know. Especially coming from LA, where we're we're like the default people. I tell people like being Chicano in LA is what being white in the rest of the country must feel like. It's just we're we're the default. Like you can get your cafe de olla at AMP, you can get pan dulce <laughs> at Safeway. Like we're you know, it, and so going to a place that like 
they don't recognize that they're even Mexicans. Like, you're just like, are you kidding me? Like, <laughs> we have a very sizable community. Like, how are you ignoring us? Um, like, the city had these, like, town hall meetings. I, uh, I think they were arts-related, these town hall, kind of to get, like, input on what the city can do, blah, blah, blah. And they had, like, a black town hall. I think they had a, a API town hall. They had, I think, a, a Muslim town hall, a queer town hall, and then an immigrant town hall. Oh, wow. And it was like, uh, <laughs> are we supposed to go to the immigrant one? Like, like you just completely wrote us off. And it was just like, wow. Like, we're the only art space grounded in Chicanismo in probably the Pacific Northwest. Not just Seattle, not just Washington, <laughs> but the Pacific Northwest. And it, it frustrates me. Like, there's individual artists that have their studios, but they're private studios. I just got wind of a new gallery that opened up in Seattle, but I think and they're focused on Mexican and Latin American art, not necessarily Chicano or Latino American art. I need to get more if I just heard about them, but, um, but yeah, like we're it, <laughs> you know, we're, and so we're trying to expand and one, we need a larger space. You know, I think that's the next step, just getting into a larger venue so that we can have a little more elbow room. And we, when we do reopen, we have space for these workshops and guest speakers and all that. But the ultimate goal is the Nepantla Cultural Arts Center, which is going to be this massive, you know, space that has, you know, it has a gallery, it has a gift shop, but it also has like a black box theater. It has a digital art space. It has maker space. And it definitely has <clears throat> studio space for artists. Um, so that's the dream. That's what we're working on with the city. And it's kind of like letting <laughs> the city know, like, you've been that squeaky wheel. Like, you've ignored us long enough. You can't continue to write us off. You need to fund us, you know. And so I will give, what I will say amazed about Seattle is Seattle funds the arts very well. We, we do an amazing job funding the arts. It's just getting to the table and be like, you know, don't ignore us. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yo, for our readers, can you tell us the significance of the name behind Napalanta? I know it's a, uh, it's a Nawa word, but uh, for yes. our, for readers that don't know, aren't maybe necessarily familiar, can you tell us what the significance of the name is? Yeah. So Napalanta is an, um, a Nawa word that means the space in between. And so, and it was, not coined, but I think popularized in the late 80s by Gloria Anzaldúa, a famous Chicana um, scholar and writer. And she talked about this Nepantla space, this kind of in-between space that, you know, for example, being Mexican-American, right? We're not Mexican enough for Mexico. We're not American enough for America. We're in that Nepantla state. It could be with queer identity. It could be with gender norms. There's all these different ways that you are kind of just in this middle ground. But the thing is, in that Nepantla state, that's where you heal, you rejuvenate, you create. And that always stuck with me. And just that's what we do at Nepantla, right? We're, we're healing, we're creating, we're rejuvenating. And I thought that was just going to be, you know, the, the perfect name for what we're doing and, uh, and the space. So that's how Nepantla came um, to be. Dope, I love it. <laughs> um, 
One thing about uh, about Chicano art is that there's um, not always, but almost uh, oftentimes there's a political connection, just kind of due to the nature of the art. And in your master's thesis, you linked art and social justice. And I wanted to ask you, what's the connection between the two for you? And why do you believe it's important to incorporate that messaging into your art, especially at a time where our society and political discourse is the most ugly and partisan it's been in recent memory? Yeah, yeah so I think, one, just being Chicano is revolutionary within itself. Just being a person of color in the United States is revolutionary within itself. To culturally survive in a country that's trying to absorb you and really eliminate you to exist is a revolutionary act. And I think through art, I, I try to use, you know, there's some that are, I think, overtly political, but I, I think most of my art, you know, there's, they use a couple of, I guess, tactics or whatever, but one is just cultural triggers. You know, for example, like my Don't Be Self Conchas painting, you know, it's, it's a girl with a concha behind her. Like, how political is that? You know, it's just whatever. But that concha, it's a cultural trick. We're going to get it. Like, we're going to have some connection to that, some emotion tied to that. For example, for me, my great-grandpa used to take me to the swap meet on the weekends. And so my mom would drop me off, and he would always have a concha and a sweet tea ready for me mm-hmm. when I got there. So that's a warm feeling to me like a concha just brings back those memories you know it might be you know kind of a a reference to the Virgil Guadalupe or it might be you know different things that are just cultural triggers where you might look at it and it's like oh it's Pandulce it's the Virgil Guadalupe but it's it's gonna like kind of elicit this emotion out of you and I think that you know has to that kind of just that cultural resilience right That, that we're we, we are tied to these cultures. These are familiar. They come from the home. And then I, I use satire a lot as well, right? So it's always a big fan of comedy and satire. So, you know, the, the old groups like Chicano Secret Service, Culture Clash, you know, Teatro Aslan, um, you know, all these different organic groups and that just use satire and agri-pop like this to kind of get your message out subversively, right? Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like, it was so, it was used so effectively, like by, you know, when the, the like the Daily Show and uh, especially like the Colbert Report, like, oh my God, that was like my <laughs> favorite show, man. Just the, the way they use comedy and satire just was brilliant. So I just, I've always loved comedy and satire and I try to, Infused a lot of times, you know, that, you know, I think don't be so conscious, you know, like the witty pun, you know, mm-hmm. um, then I saw it everywhere, you know, now I see people like, so I remember when I thought the idea, don't be so conscious. And I was just like, oh my God, like, you know, that'd be a great painting idea and slogan. And I Googled it, you know, like, has anyone thought of this before? Kind of a thing. And at the time, there was one picture of a girl holding a Z that said, don't be self-conscious. Mm-hmm. I was like, shit, I'm not the first. <laughs> but there was like just that one. And then I did my painting and like everyone has like, don't be self-conscious now, you know? And so, but people always will tag me and like, look, they're stealing your... And I'm like, 
I can't claim to be the first. <laughs> it was an original idea, but someone did post it first. And um, it, you know, and I, I, I love seeing everyone's interpretation of it anyways, right? So, you know, I, I don't mind everyone doing their don't be self-conscious. As long as you don't steal my artwork attached to it. Okay. <laughs> Slogan is free use, you know, just don't steal my artwork. Yeah, exactly. Um, I like how you brought up, like, um, like you said, like these cultural triggers in art because, um, in a lot of ways, whether we're Chicano, Latino, you know, people of color in these art spaces, you know, like our our existence in these spaces is resistance in a way too, and our very existence is politicized in and of itself. So, um, yeah, so you know, so I have a series called Cultural Resilience. We still exist, and it just. So I just got tired of people talking about like indigenous communities, like we're an extinct people, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, no, like Mayans, you know, <laughs> like we're still here, right? <laughs> These indigenous communities still exist. We didn't disappear. And so what I, you know, and our culture survives in the way we cook. It survives in the way we, we raise our children, work with our elders. It survives in the stories that we tell. You know, it, it survives in our dance. Like, for example, I was at a quinceanera not too long ago. I was just watching folks dancing and I just really started paying attention. And then I was just like, man, if you just turn, if you just switch the music, right? And it was the Aztec drumming, boom, 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 It was the same rhythm. Like they, their dancing today would still go with Aztec. And it's like, that's residual culture. It survives, right? It's a new music form, but it's, like it's still based on the heartbeat. Like mm-hmm. it just it's crazy to see that. So what I did were these portraits of friends and family and just pay, and just like with a paint pen over their portraits, like kind of is these like Aztec symbols to kind of just be represent like this invisible culture that we walk around with every day, right? So yeah, so that's another way that like you're saying, like that survival of culture. Um, it's in our DNA, it's genetic. Absolutely. Um, another thing that you brought up is that you love to see people's interpretation of your work. Do you have any memorable responses that people have had to your work that you've seen before or anything that sticks out? Yeah. One, I, I have a painting, uh, Be Still My Beating Corazon. And it's a painting of a, a good friend of mine, Mariana Aguirre, who she's amazing. She was one of the founders of uh, the Ovarian Cyclists over in East LA, mm-hmm. uh, which was an all-mujer bicycle crew. It started by Chela, but you know, she was one of the founding. And then she went on and she was doing all these like bicycle rights advocacy. And then now she's like a, a DJ and they get Chulita's vinyls. And so she's always doing amazing. But I did this painting of her and she's holding like a, a heart. And I always tell people like, uh, you get to interpret that. <laughs> like if you feel great about love, like she's offering her heart. If you're feeling shitty about love, like she's ripped your heart out, like so. You know, it's funny just to see which which way do you go with that painting, right? <laughs> um, but as far as like a like just a moment, I just go. There was a family that came into Nepal, like kind of the whole family, and they brought their abuelito there, and so there's this you know viejito mexicano, and he looked like he was kind of dragged, <laughs> dragged there with the rest of the family, like you know, I was like. And um, he's just, they're all looking and getting things, you know, and shopping. 
And he, so on that side of the wall, I just have, so on the gift shop side, it's like all the just gifts and display stuff. And then on the wall is my art on that side. And then the other side is all the exhibition, is the exhibition. But he's looking at my art while they're all shopping. And I just see him looking at all the paintings. And he had this like big smile on his face. And I, I think he just finally saw art that reflected him right that resonated with him i'm sure he's probably been to art galleries before that said nothing to him right Mm -hmm. that just had nothing to do with his experience his life his culture people that even look like him or his family you know and now he sees art with people that look like him that with those cultural triggers that he gets and I think, you know, he just had this amazing, beautiful smile while he's looking at it. and Because he came in kind of grouchy looking, you know. <laughs> and then just to see him looking at him, just smile. Oh, my God, man, that was one of the best feelings. Like, oh, my God, he got it. He, you know, it resonated with him. You know, like another painting that I think really resonates with people is the uh, Chicana in College, where it's a girl reading, like, kind of in her college dorm room and she's on the windowsill reading looking out the window and she's got like all these protest posters on her wall and then like kind of a uh well the one in the window and it's like backwards because but it you know says fuck trump punch nazis and um so many people like just it resonates with them they're like it's either like oh my god that's me in college or that's my daughter that's my sister that they always see someone they know in that painting mm-hmm. and like, like uh, to hear that is like makes me feel good you know like I don't think it's my greatest painting I ever did like just execution wise but it is one of the most popular paintings I've ever done just the amount of people that comment on it and it resonates with and I'm like so alright all right, cool cool yeah. <laughs> absolutely you know, with that said, you know, uh, what is your typical process while preparing work on a new piece? Like, do you do a lot of research beforehand or like, do you kind of have like ideas already in mind? Yeah. So I, I used to kind of keep a little journal. And when I think of ideas, I would like jot them down in a journal and kind of go back to them. I might be inspired by art I see on Instagram or something like that. Or it might, I might. I use Pinterest a lot. I don't know if anyone uses Pinterest anymore except for me. But um, I, I love just, like, I have a folder of just art I love. I save it to that folder, and, you know, I might it might be like, oh, my God, I, oh, I, I love how they did that nose. Like, <laughs> it might be like, oh, man, that background is beautiful. Like, it might be like kind of an abstract background. Or, oh, you know, this, they're in space. It looks so cool. Like, the way they drew space is cool. And that might inspire something. Like, I, so the Chicana in College, so I did a, a series called uh, Norman Rockwell and Post Racial America. So I was taking these Norman Rockwell images, which, you know, Norman Rockwell kind of being like, you know, the kind of seen as Americana, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it's like quintessential Americana. And so taking these Rockwell images and flipping them in this contemporary lens with POC folk as the subject, right? What, what do they look like today? And so that 
Chicana in college is one of them. I did one of like a father and son that's like, you know, the son's going off to college and the, the migrant farm worker dad's looking kind of tired and sad a little. And I did one like a little girl looking at a magazine cover. And, like the original is like this model, like kind of Vogue, Vogue kind of cover. Mm-hmm. But it's um, Alexandria Casio Cortez on the cover of the magazine. You know, so it's like, who is this generation or this new generation's hero? Who are we looking up to? And then I'm just, so that inspired like some pieces. Uh, the one I, I spoke about with Marianne, that was part of a series called uh, Mujeres Fuertes. And so hers represents love in all its forms. One I did of Emilia Cruz, which is an amazing artist. I'm sure you're familiar with her work. Um, <clears throat> and she represents kind of the, the Chicana and the arts. And then I did one of a girl, uh, which kind of she represents Mother Earth and the environment. She's just holding like, Chucks, you know, the shoe, mm-hmm. like a nopal, nopal growing out of it. And, um, and that one's just kind of like a nod to the movie Wally, you know, the whole boot with the little plant. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what's the most Chicano shoe out there? Chucks. And then <laughs> nopal growing. Um, but and now I'm, I'm starting to work on a series um, inspired by comic book art. Oh, okay. Um, and so the first one I'm working on right now. Um, you know, I love Alex Ross. He's a you know, comic book artist. Uh, so I've, some images I saw, but it's this guy just flying, you know, just, and uh, so he's, he's in outer space and he's like kind of just like flying and kind of a little bit of a grin on his face. And uh, the title of the painting is going to be um, The Floor is Racism. And so the idea is he's just trying to get as far away from hate and racism as possible, you know? <laughs> he's in outer space, you know? Yeah. Um, Another so the next one I want to do, which I think is going to be like big, and I was going to love it. <laughs> I always think I was going to love my paintings, but um, but the next one I want to do is um, so they're you know one of the X Men Angel, or the comic book. Uh, he's the one with the bird wings, and I found this Alex Ross piece where like angels like saving a little mutant girl, and he's like kind of flying up, and um, there's all these like protesters underneath them that are like anti-mutant you know steins and things like that and i just thought like oh my god like um flipping that with like a woman with butterfly wings and holding a little like you know migrant girl um so saving this kind of immigrant girl and all the anti-immigrant people protesting at the bottom um so I think that one's going to hopefully resonate with a lot of folks and that's going to be my next painting. And then, you know, I'm sure I'll do something else just inspired by comic book art. Um, like I've got a bunch of different ideas. I, you know, I want to play with the idea of kind of just, you know, what I love about comic the exaggeration of like punches or, you know, you know, that, but like almost just that exaggeration of maybe a little kid with a um, breaking up piñata, but in that kind of, exaggerated comic book style of you know almost like hulk smash (laughs) (laughs) that's cool i can't wait to see that does do you have a name for that particular series not right now i'm just calling it comic book inspired but yeah i'll have to come up with a cool name for it i can't wait to see uh, I i can't wait to see more of those so right now uh like your the medium you use typically is oil painting correct um, has that always been your preferred um, medium to work with? So, well, I started off with acrylic. 
And I think I kind of, around 2012 is when I started doing oil, maybe 2013, but around then. Um, so I also, so I started doing, I think my first paintings was very stencil style, uh, which was like really popular at the time. <clears throat> and so I would, it was a lot of kind of abstract backgrounds and, um, and then this kind of stencil style photo in the foreground. And then and I started off just painting like my favorite kind of, you know, like Run DMC or like The Clash or, you know, The Beatles or something, you know, Zapata. And then, then I started, you know, like I said, your work just starts, your own style, your own voice starts coming out in the paintings a little more. So you start, I think a lot of people, like artists start out just painting celebrities or whatever, mm -hmm. you know, because it's just for yourself and you know, but then you just start having a voice in your work, right? And so then it just started doing like portraits with acrylic. And uh, and then when I started doing oil, like I just, the, like the blends and things like that, that I was really forcing with acrylic, like just doing, like you would have kind of your mid-tone layer and then you just kind of like try and blend it with like three mixtures just to get that. It, 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 and then I tried oil and it just like, automatically happens you're like oh my god <laughs> like, <laughs> like my aha moment and it's like this is so much easier um it just takes forever to dry and you know but um yeah that's when i was like if you know for portraits and things like that like it just oil works so much better for me mm -hmm. um a lot of times i'll just i might do kind of a mix like if i'm because oil takes so long to dry there's if you're just doing like a solid color background like for example just like you know the background of where it's just a solid blue of that painting mm -hmm. there's no point in painting that oil right like it's just a solid color you're not mixing you're not blending so i'll, I'll just paint that in acrylic because that will dry in five minutes you mm -hmm. know um but like all the you know me and my son were you know oil painted you know so sometimes i might just you know or or if i want like an abstract background i'll still do acrylic because you can do washes and drips and cool things mixing water, you know, which you cannot do with, with oil. <laughs> with yeah. Oil, right? <laughs> um, you really, I, I just don't know how to do like abstract type of stuff with oil. So I, I'll go back to acrylic and do kind of backgrounds maybe, but, um, or from my newest painting, I, so if you go to my Instagram or Facebook, right, Instagram best, but I, I posted maybe a couple days ago, the, the progress shot of my newest painting, the guy flying in space. And so the space background, I did acrylic, and now I'm painting in in oil. Um, but uh, like I was saying, like I'm not a fast painter. <laughs> like I see like friends of mine, and they'll just knock out a painting in a day, and I'm just like, how? <laughs> like, it's like I, I I spent like four hours already, and I've gotten the pants and his socks. <laughs> you know, like man, like how do these people do that? Um, but yeah, so you you kind of want to see kind of that mixture, like look at that painting in progress right now. Cause it kind of shows. And, and I was really nervous about doing that space background. I've never done a space background. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm happy with the way it came out. You know, I was like, Oh, I was really scared. I was screwing up. Right. Just starting off. But uh, I think it came out pretty cool. Throughout this interview, you've cited a lot of people, but if you could, um, if you could narrow it down to just a couple individuals, who who has had the most impact on 
your um, on your artwork as an artist? Well, uh, man, yeah, so many people, right? Uh, I mean, just I give so much credit to Irene Cervantes for starting me on the journey, right? Being that first teacher that really inspired me to, to create art um, or get back to painting and finding art again. And she was actually my thesis. She became my thesis chair. Um, so yeah, I owe a lot to her. Um, influence. Like I, I'm a big fan of Amelia Cruz. And I don't know. I think she's like 25. Maybe she's so young and so gifted and talented. I'm like, fuck you for being so good. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, but yeah, like I, it's like kind of like, I want to paint as good as her. (laughs) Um, Rick Ortega is amazing and, and such a humble guy. Ray Vargas uh, was another, like, he doesn't post his work as much as I think the others, you know, but he's, his talent is up there with everyone. Like, it's just, I don't think he, he gets it out there as, as much as other folks, but he's an amazing artist. And, you know, when I was in LA, like, we, he was a good friend and we would, he would actually kind of like, I could paint at his house and he'd kind of give me little tips while I was painting. It was, it was cool to have that. I wanted to do a show in LA or I mean, in, at the, in Seattle at the Bonneville Arts Gallery, like the LA meets Seattle. And we were going to do it right before the pandemic hit. And so just to kind of give you some of my favorites. So the people from LA that I was inviting to be in the show was uh, Rick Ortega, Emilia Cruz, Ray Vargas, Cali Arte, and Barbara Rivera. So those are some of my favorite artists in LA, right? I also, you know, huge fan of Ernesto Irena. Talk about someone who's really blown up, right? Mm-hmm. All over, like he's amazing, and he's still like just such a humble dude and so low key. Um, yeah, I, I've been very, very fortunate being a part of kind of the East LA Chicano art scene, probably in the twenty tens was such an amazing experience. You know, I tell people it must have been what the Harlem Renaissance felt like. Just, I'd go to Eastside Love and I'd be hanging out with just these amazingly talented folks. It might be like the folks from Las Cafeteras or, you know, Chicano Batman or um, La Santa Cecilia, you know, or artists like, you know, Ray Vargas, you know, or um, Ernesto or... You know, so you were just surrounded by and, and amazing poets, right? And all these amazing talents. And I, I felt like the Chicano Force Gump, right? Like, <laughs> you're in the middle of, like, all these amazing things happening, but you're just like, do like, I belong in here? Like, you know, I mean, um, but yeah, it's it just, it was an amazing experience. And, and what it does is it inspires your work, right? It pushes you. And you see something that one of them has created and you're like, okay, that's where the bar is. I have to create something above that bar now. Mm -hmm. And so it pushes your work and it pushes you to continue to, to not just put out art, but improve what you're doing. Right. And not just kind of become stagnant in your work. Um, And just to have this amazing energy, right. Of, Art, like it was just absolutely amazing, and it, it's something I really wanted to kind of recapture in Seattle. Was you know 
all of us creating the art that is inspiring each other and, and pushing us to create more art. And I think the pandemic's kind of hurt that, right? Like, and I, now that I'm saying it, like, I've kind of been going through an artist block. Like, I haven't, this, so the painting I'm doing right now is like the first painting I've done since probably September. Okay. You know, I just, I've had the idea, and I've been like, I don't know, like, you just, maybe it's unmotivated or whatever. Like, I just haven't been able to find the time to put pen on canvas and paint on canvas. And um, now I'm, I'm getting excited because, you know, this new series, of you know. But uh, I think part of it is, like, now I'm not hanging out with these artists and things like that. You know, what's pushing me? What's driving me to create something better? I don't have it, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I'm starting to get lazy. And yeah, so I hope we get out of this pandemic soon and we can start hanging out with each other and inspiring each other again. Yeah, definitely. Especially for artists, you know, to be around that community. As with any artist, when you complete a piece, you put it out into the world and then the audience interprets it how they will. Ultimately, as an artist, though, what message do you hope the audiences take away from the art that you've produced over the years? I think, you know, that it resonates with them. That they get it, that they appreciate, appreciate it. I was talking to my fiance, you know, Judy, and uh, just, I think, like, we've gotten a lot of grants for Napatla, but, like, me as an individual artist, like, I haven't got that many, like, I'll, I keep getting denied, you know, grants or something like that. And, um, and I was telling her, like, I don't think Seattle gets my art or, you know, generally speaking, right? Mm-hmm. Definitely there's people here that embrace what I'm doing, embrace my art. But kind of, I think the, like, the larger Seattle art community, you know, that might be pale, <laughs> um, doesn't, I, I think they just don't get what I'm, I'm putting out there. They, they're not, they don't get the cultural triggers. They don't get the, the references. They don't get the significance of something where in like, when, when I show my work or when I've been fortunate enough to have exhibitions in California or Texas or, you know, people get it, you know, they, they understand it. They, like, I have, you know, my Don't Be Self Concha shirt, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I would wear it in Seattle and never get one compliment or comment on my shirt. I wore it in San Antonio and everyone. <laughs> just Left like, and right. Yeah, I love that shirt. Where'd you get that shirt? I, like, every store I go in, like, just walk. I was like, holy crap, man. Like, no one ever <laughs> shit about this shirt in Seattle. Like, um, so, you know, it, it's kind of, you know, for I want my art to to resonate with folks. I want them to get it. I want them to you know understand what I'm trying to say in my art. And uh, definitely, the folks that are coming to Napantla get it right. Mm-hmm. That's why they're supporting it. And um, you know, uh, you know, but I think on a larger base, like a lot of folks aren't. It's it's not resonating with them. You know. I think that's my dream is that just folks understand what I'm putting out and, and get what I'm saying and um, 
makes them feel like they're not alone, right? Like there's, for, you know, fine art is very Eurocentric, right? Yeah. Um, especially the stuff that we're constantly told is high art and this is what holds value and this is, uh, you know, it, a lot of times it doesn't resonate with me. It doesn't speak to me, you know? Um, but then there's, you know, an artist that their work, I'm just like, damn, like, I get that. Like, that holds value to me. I see myself in that, and, that, and that's what I hope other folks get from my work. Absolutely. And with that also said, you know, what advice do you have for young artists and creatives who want to create art professionally, seeing how you've you've been through the process, being like on the other side of it now? Yeah. Um, what I always tell folks, we're force fed this myth that artists don't make money or you know, you can't there you know, you can't make a living doing art, which is bullshit. Everything you've touched today, an artist touched before you. The box of cereal you ate out of was designed by an artist. The shoes you're wearing was designed by an artist. The table you have in front of you was designed by an artist. Like, there are so many careers in art, you know, designing cars, you know, so many things in um, websites and all that. So there's tons of well-paying jobs in the art field. Um, not all are well-paying, you know, but there are definitely tons of, of well-paying jobs in the art field. So don't be, you know, force-fed this life. Because, you know, I think there's such an obsession in this country right now with STEM, mm-hmm. which I'm not knocking STEM. We need it. But your, your obsession with STEM is telling kids that don't have that skill set that they don't matter that they don't have hold value in society right when that's bullshit like we hold value as well um you know when they try and do that steam mm-hmm. <laughs> you're like bullshit don't, <laughs> don't patronize me with your steam <laughs> um so you know if you love art continue to do art but make sure you, it takes time to perfect your skill. You've got to keep at it. You've got to keep practicing, keep creating art. And every drawing you do, every painting you do is going to be a little bit better than the last one. So you have to continue to practice and draw and paint and whatever your art medium is. Um, but don't give up on it and, and if you don't know people that, you know, if people don't get your art, maybe you're just talking to the wrong people because there's someone out there that does get your art. Um, and when you meet that person, that it resonates with them. It's like that. It's a beautiful moment. And also, where can people find you and follow you online to see all your work and get all the latest updates for shows at uh, La Plata and other exhibitions and events? Yeah, so you can go... So. Um, NapatlaCulturalArts.com is our website. And then our Instagram is just at Napatla Cultural Arts. Um, and then for my own just individual work, um, you know, jakeprendez.com or, you know, my 
Instagram is just at Jake Prendes. I think it's the same for Facebook as well. Um, so yeah, hopefully, you know, folks follow and visit both the Napanda Cultural Arts um, social media outlets and Jake Prendes social media outlets. Um, you know, I think I update the Instagram and Facebook stuff way more than I do the website. <laughs> Yo, so with that said, yo, do you have any closing comments or anything else you'd like to let the readers know? Maybe something I might have missed? Um, no, I, I just appreciate you uh, taking the opportunity and time out of your day to, to interview me. Um, so thank you so much. And yeah. <laughs> This episode of Step Off Radio is recorded at the Justice Center, San Diego, and our music was done by DJ Root. This has been a Step Off Magazine production.